0: All right, so what I was going to talk to them about is, um, is uh, mealtime prayers. I started it out in the first service and I said, um, you know, the one I grew up with was bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts, which we're about to receive from thy bounty. You. Yes. And um, only the Catholic folks in the, the place knew what that one was. Thank you, my sister. Uh, um, and then there's the Moravian one. Come, Lord Jesus, our guest to be. And bless, bestowed by thee, and bless our loved ones everywhere, and keep them in your loving care. And then there's my favorite God is good, God is great. Let us thank Him for our food. Amen. What? God is good. It's written. God is good. God is grace. So I see. I was the Catholic guy doing the right one, and then I came to Protestantism, and these little short, you know. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did you? Did God actually say?" So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that, would, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. And then they heard, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God that is Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you may God bless the preaching and reading of his word It started out really well, y'all We've been like five weeks into some really good stuff in Genesis 1 and 2. You know, paradise and Eden, beloved image bearers taking their place to tend creation towards bounty and beauty. And then chapter 3 hits and it all does go wrong. It's what people call the fall, how sin entered the world through the temptation of a deceiver and it chronicles our original disobedience. And sin brought universal calamity on the world. And it threw humanity into a state of guilt and shame. That's why it is called the fall. Now, sin and temptation is a popular topic, especially when you're talking about other people. Not so much for us is it a popular topic when we're talking about ourselves, but it's a very popular topic as in issue in which we participate in. I have some experience with sin and temptation. You might say I have an unnecessary expertise in the matter. But according to scripture in Genesis 3, so do you. So what is sin? It's when you mess up, you disobey, you do something that you know you should not or you don't do something you know you should. But it's more than that. It's a posture of our hearts, a rebellion of our thoughts and our desires and our actions. It's succumbing to those temptations to to throw off the goodness of God's ways. Our catechism says that sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And that is a good definition. You might say it differently sin is anything that doesn't conform to life with god and or a rebellion from the ways of god in genesis 3 we see something more than an explanation of the fact of the fall What we actually see is an exploration of some of the core motivations and temptations of sin it's an archetype of disobedience in some sense it's a model or if you will an anti-model of temptation and sin for all of Adam's descendants. So let's look at these core temptations. And the first temptation is interrogation. The crafty one slinks up to Eve with Adam at her side. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It doesn't seem really subtle at all, actually, especially when it's coming from the craftiest of beasts? Is that what he said? But interrogation is not the same thing as, just so you know, there's a way to ask God questions. God loves us to ask genuine and heartfelt questions. Where where are you in this? Have you abandoned us? Will you ever leave me? But the, the Psalms, and the Psalms are filled with questions like that. But this question is in question of interrogation, questions with an edge, a cross-examination of God and his commandments. And at face value, it doesn't look too crafty, especially when Eve answers it correctly. She says, yeah, well, Adam and I have talked, and we, we know this command you told him and then you told us together that we can eat of any place in, a, uh, any place in the garden, just not that one tree, or we'll die. But the the, sermon, the serpent proves his craftiness because his language about God is fascinatingly and diabolically subtle. In Genesis 1, the way God is described is the Elohim. It's kind of a more generic way of talking about God um, and a little bit less intimate. He's the king and the creator and the judge, and he is the king who created his kingdom and and he uh, judges it good. In Genesis 2, when it gets to forming Adam and Eve in a more specific way, the languages of Yahweh, the intimate father who formed Adam and Eve, who blew in his nostrils to give him the breath of life. He is the God with the name. Now, you're not hearing me say that these are two separate things. They're just two ways of describing the same thing in a great rabbi i read is the one that helped me understand this the serpent calls though in genesis 3 which is now moving out of genesis 2 which was all about yahweh and says uses the term elohim for eve he wants king he wants king and judge ringing in the ear that would orient them away from an intimate god Hear, hear the difference in your ears did the judge really say that It's a technical question. It's an interrogation of the record of the case. Did Yahweh really say that? A relational question about the creator and loving father or loving parent that is there for you. And what what God does is that, or, or what the serpent does is he isolates and distances God's sovereign justice, which is absolutely true, and his gracious fatherhood and his intimate kindness. So God is good. God is great. Which one is it? That's right. God is great, God is good. Protestants. Um, Now, friends, God is always transcendent and sovereign king, creator of the world. And he's always intimate father who forms us and loves us and cares for us. And one of the craftiest ploys that we have is to separate the good and the great, Never forget the opening lines of that, sir, that, that prayer, even though I do. You can't do much better theology than holding those things together. And it's not much better comfort in the world to hold those together. So the serpent is orienting Eve almost subconsciously to hear, don't eat means this is the judge's ruling. And not just, or not, don't eat because... The sovereign judge and Lord of the universe who's also the one that created you intimately and loves you doesn't want you to do this because it's going to hurt you. And for us, craftiness and temptation always interrogates this goodness in some kind of way. As everyone sing, every single one of us knows what it feels like to interrogate God's law and His law of love and to, to, to defiantly or squeakily or weird, in some weird way say did he really say that the second strategy of the serpent is even more direct she's responded well and then he doubles down on the goodness of God and his character the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for God knows when you eat of it your eyes will be opened you've got it right but he says well what if you can't trust this judge creator god that's where he goes next he says ignore the reality that you can eat anything in the garden concentrate on that one thing that you're told not to do why he's trying to keep the really good stuff from you he's worried you're going to have more power power become more powerful than him by knowing as much as he does he's scared to lose power. He just doesn't want you to be happy. So he's great, but he's not good. And the serpent lets all that sink in. You got to remember that God gave them all of everything except for one thing, eat the strawberries and the blueberries and pick some chickpeas and make delightful hummus. Just don't eat that tree from that tree because it will harm you. But our first parents would let those lies of either not being good or not being great sink in. That we cannot trust his law and his love equally. That God is not great. He's actually a jealous tyrant. And he's not good because of that very fact. But then the serpent added one more back breaking temptation. And if you do, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can, you can be just like God, just as knowledgeable, just as wise, wise, controlling your own way, doing what you want, being completely sovereign over yourself. And even saying that, knowing it's all wrong, it does bring something up in me that makes me like, "Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. That's wrong. temptation is to know there is a temptation to to think we can know as if we were God to live as if we were God that way we can handle our own lives as partial equals to God it's not just our first parents that saw the tree was that and saw that it was desirous to make one wise and I say this with a little fun The sissing sounds of the serpent still seduce us. This happens. You know this happens. It creates a place where we can know some form of good and evil without reliance upon God in that. It's what all the culture wars are, the anti-culture wars. It's all we air in in grievous sin and mean tweets and deep suspicions are born from thinking that we have the godlike knowledge. It's what makes us feel justified in hating, and demeaning, and ignoring, and judging, and silencing, and dismissing, and ultimately killing people. If you believe that you have godlike knowledge of good and evil, then not only you can't be wrong, you're doing a service to humanity by being arrogant about it. And here's the quick gut check on this: God gives us His word as a gift. But if your theology and heart receive that gift and it doesn't make you more humble or loving or courageous, then you left the gift unopened or you unwrapped it in a way that didn't receive the true gift. That's not wishy-washy theologically. That's fundamental Christian ethic and practice and theology. It is a gift to receive these words so that we can in fact deal with our own temptations, and live with generosity and conviction and justice and love for other people's convictions or or, um, sin and temptation. So what happened? Spoiler alert, they ate. Our first mother was overwhelmed right next to her husband. When she saw all this stuff, she was like, yeah, I'm going for it. And he was right next to her, saying nothing more on that next time I preach. Saying nothing, and they ate. With that lingering sense that God might be not great or not good, and then this heart racing idea that she might be able to be just like God and He would too, they ate, both of them. They had been given such goodness and Bountiful Garden. They had one negative command, they had one job. and they disobey. But sin always does this. It takes something good and puts it out of proportion or shrinks another good in its light. Sin always takes something good and corrupts it. Sin is always a cancer on something good. It is a cell cell growing and dividing and spreading throughout the body if it's not stopped. That's what sin is. And the tragedy of the fall is incalculable And we've all experienced it and we've all participated in it, all of us. And there is the temptation to kind of get after Adam and Eve about this, saying you only had one job, but it's it's more than that. See if this hits home for you. Did God really say that we should be more fearful of a building falling on us are less fearful of a billing falling on us than his judgment? He did. Did God say that my body, our bodies are not our own, but belong to him? Yeah. Did Jesus really say that it's hard to be rich in a Christian? He did. Did Jesus really say that if you call someone a fool, that you are guilty of murder for the Sanhedrin? He did. Did he really say that you will be forgiven as you forgive? He did. Does Jesus really want us to live lives of Sabbath? Yep. And did he really say for us to love our enemies? Absolutely. And doesn't your heart even reading that go, well, did you really say it like that? I mean, you know, that camel and the gate and the thing story that's actually not true. But, you know, there's all sorts of things like that. My own heart leaps in protest at times for the nuance and the temptations for me to not say he just said it. And something in me also goes, did he really say it? Can he really be trusted? See, how we orient to God's law and his his love deeply matters. If he's great and not good, he is the tyrannical ruler. And he's jealous and stingy. And you'll tell yourself anything you need to believe to avoid him. If he is good, but not great, then he's kind of irrelevant. Because he's, become, because he's become your peer. You can tell yourself anything you can, anything you want, so that you can do anything you want. And then when you add that we can be like him, you just created a stew of folly and destruction. And so it goes. Adam and Eve, and now we experience the fall, the paradise lost. And the relationships between God and us, and the relationships between us and ourselves, our mirrors, and us and each other, and us and the world are estranged and broken. And how did our first parents respond? They responded with covering and hiding. Eyes of them were both open, and they knew they were naked. They sowed fig leaves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. When our sin and failure is exposed, there is a tragic instinct built into our rebellious state that we sow, we cover, we, 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 we shield ourselves from vulnerability and guilt, we hide our nakedness, we distrust and disobey, and then we cover and hide. And we cover with excuses, and we cover with addictions, and we cover with lying, and we cover with all status and money or whatever it is. We cover and hide in those things. But it's all fig leaves. It's all fig leaves. None of it covers, and we kind of know it, but then we just add more covering. The story of the rest of that, even these last couple, these last verses here, is that God comes. And covers us just a few verses God actually makes them their own clothing but more importantly the first response from this tragic fall is God walking in the cool of the day being with them and saying where are you where are you because he didn't know no because it was the relational reality where are you God would not let sin have the last word. He would literally walk on the scene and then start speaking. Tenderly, where are you? And this launches the resolve of God, which is what we call redemption, to not let sin have its way in humanity. Because God is great and He's good. And so He sends His Son to come to us and to cleanse us and to clothe us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who knew no sin, who would become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And here's a wild irony, and I hope I can get this right. Our deep temptation was to be just like God, which is wild because chapters one and two say that we were made in the image and likeness of God. It was just lower L and we were going for big L likeness, right? So we wanted more. So in our sin, we actually become less like God in terms of our reflective nature. So God sent his son, who was in fact just like God, with a cup, with capital L-I-K-E, because he was God. But then he also sent him just like us. And he takes on even our brokenness and sin, just like us, in order to make us be able to be in his likeness again. I don't know how to diagram that. But to undo the fall in the story of this, because God was utterly committed from the get, as soon as it happened, I'm coming on the scene, and I'm changing the way this is going to go down. I will not lose this game. The whole narrative of the the Bible is about our useless fig leaves and his wild, wild grace that overpowers our hiding and our covering. And Jesus has come to us, to cover, to cleanse. All the prophecies read, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. he's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's not just clothing. It's getting all gussied up in the righteousness of God. Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, this is Zechariah, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Big shout out to the word festal. We need that back in the vocabulary. Jesus becomes the second Adam, the true one who, who went through his temptations and did not fall, tempted in every way that we have been, and did not fall, held close in heart and mind and action. And what does Paul say when he describes that? So put on Christ. That's clothing language. Susan Hunt says, God was not obligated to do anything. He could have turned away from the creature and the creation. Instead, he intervened. He came to the garden. He called to the man. He clothed Adam and Eve in garments of skin. Here is the essence of grace. God came, God called, God clothed, God cleansed. And we still live in the family tradition of those tempted ones of that rebellion but the story of the gospel is this that his grace is more powerful than our sin because god is great god is good let us thank him amen